Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the latest, the official podcast of the Brock Press, where we take you beyond the headlines and do a deep dive into some of the many interesting articles written by our team this week. My name is Noah. I'm editor-in-chief of the Brock Press and host of the latest. I'm joined, as always, by Holly Morrison, our managing editor. And this week, we are also joined by one of our editors at large, uh, Jonah Dayton. So how are you both doing today? Doing well. First time for me back in a while. I'm doing pretty good. Um, I had a fun bus adventure this morning, so we are late recording this podcast. Um, but Noah and Jonah are very patient, um, even as I stupidly decide to go get groceries before recording a podcast and then miss a bus. But other than that, it's been a wonderful morning. It's all good. We just we were ahead of the ball, and now we're back on time. So all's good. No worries. And yes, Jonah, it is nice to have you back again. It's been a while, but that's good. Good to have you. So this week was another big one uh, in the news. In Ontario here, we are in full pre-election mode. And so the province has started to reopen and remove more and more uh, COVID mandates and rules and restrictions. And they seem dead set on getting all of those gone and out of the way before the election. Also, the uh, invasion of Ukraine has continued. And we felt an admittedly very, very small effect of that here at the gas pumps lately. Uh, and lastly, but not least, Holly wrote about uh, athletes, professional athletes, and you know the importance of remembering that they are employees and workers first, and celebrities, and you know professional athletes second. And yeah, we're going to talk about all three of those. So uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. So the first uh, pair of articles that we're going to talk about, sort of the same theme about a return to normal. Uh, One was written by our news editor, Chad Ellis, as well as Devani Shaw, another news editor. And Chad wrote about how things are reopening rather quickly. Uh, COVID restrictions are falling by the wayside. Um, Public health is still very much encouraging people to stay vigilant and uh, for businesses to do their part as well. While Devani wrote about uh, the petition going around from Brock nursing grads who are frustrated by the school's decision to cancel their pinning ceremony again this year, despite uh, restrictions being lifted. So I just quickly wanted to get your thoughts on not just reopening uh, to the unvaccinated, but also the upcoming removal of mask mandates and physical distancing and whatnot. Um, What do you think about the timing, about the, uh, I guess, the the haste that this is all of a sudden happening at? And uh, do you think better late than ever? It is definitely politically motivated. And I think that's pretty plain to see to just about anyone. Not to say that I'm, well, I don't really, (laughs) I don't really personally care about the things that they're changing, really, for the most part. There's a few things. But like, I've been vaccinated and, you know, 90% of the country has been vaccinated. So, I mean, the vast majority of us, even the, the, I'd say close to the majority of people who were hesitant or skeptical originally, have done their part and got the shot. Uh, I do understand that, you know, uh, vaccine requirements to enter places couldn't really last forever. I don't think they necessarily should have to. But in like, in terms of that change, that doesn't really affect me. <laughs> uh, the masks have never really bothered me personally. I'm probably going to keep using them personally, uh, save for... The only place I think it's kind of irrelevant and kind of silly is 
at uh, restaurants just because if you're going to a restaurant, you're going to have to take it off to eat anyways. So why are you wearing it for the five seconds you walk from the entrance to your seat or the you know minute or two you go to the washroom and back? Seems kind of silly, but other places, I think it makes sense to keep using it. So I'm probably still will, at least for the time being. Uh, and then really the only thing that I kind of am happy about uh, is distancing just because that's been kind of limiting capacity of like the only thing that's been left closed, right? Like big events, uh, concerts and things like that. So to have that going away is good. Uh, and really I just kind of want consistency is the big thing for me. So even if it's politically motivated to keep this, you know, to get this stuff out, the big thing for me is if after the election or even in the lead up to the election, things have to go back again, it's just would be really demoralizing and terrible. Uh, you know, but if the situation requires it, I guess, you know, it is what it is. But, you know, I really hope that this, in their political motivation to get things open, that, you know, there was still a consideration of of that possibility of the having to rebound again for the fourth or fifth time. And that would just really uh, be terrible, in my opinion. But but yeah, most of the stuff doesn't bother me. Most of it doesn't really affect me. Uh, but the things that are coming, I think, are good. I just am hopeful that, <laughs> definitely hopeful that things uh, can stay on a positive trajectory. Yeah, I think, like, I guess a little bit of same here. There's a lot of it that doesn't really super affect me you know i'm vaccinated i got my booster i still wear a mask in most places and probably still will um i guess just sort of like the disorganization of it is what gives me pause and a little bit of concern like it did happen quite suddenly and a lot of people in places don't quite know what the rules are still what's going on what the rules are in certain industries who can do what who can do where and like I know that I've, like, beat this drum a whole bunch, but I'm still, like, quite concerned for people who, um, you know, maybe have autoimmune disorders or, you know, are immunocompromised, um, how that kind of thing will affect them. Um, you know, obviously, like you said, the vaccine mandates just to enter public buildings, that wasn't going to stay around forever. Um, but removing mask mandates, I think... Um, especially in like crowded large settings, um, I think that that might be a little bit that gives me pause. I think because then what you're doing is sort of excluding people with disabilities from you know public life and being out in public. Um, so you know mask mandates or even just like the general like social not necessarily like pressure but like social expectation that you wear a mask when you're inside. That is something that I'd like to see like at least stick around for a little bit longer. Yeah, similar to you guys, um, I got all, th all three uh, shots and uh, feel like given my age, I'm pretty low risk. Um, also like you guys, like wearing a mask is not that much of you know, a burden, it's pretty easy. So uh, I think it's not that hard, like if a store or whatever wants to keep a mask policy on, I'll abide, it's pretty easy. It's not that intrusive. Um, and Noah, the restaurant thing you were so right about, that made no sense. 
where you have to like put it on while you walk to your table, sit down, and then take it off, and then get up and put it back on to pay the check or whatever. That never made sense. But um, I think, like we saw a few summers ago, actually, I think both summers of the pandemic, it was pretty, pretty nonchalant because cases were low, the weather was nice. And now that we're getting into the warmer months, I think that also will sort of help, uh, I guess, feel like everything will go back to normal, which sort of uh, leads me into the second question. I know that we've all been way off uh, making predictions before. I think I, once the NBA got canceled, or not canceled, but like shut down indefinitely the first time in like March 2020, I, I wrote in sidelines like, probably it'll be like a three to four week thing and then we'll be back good as new. So that was way off. But um, just for the sake of uh, predicting, let's try again. What do you think will look, what do you think things will look like uh, in 12 months from now as far as health restrictions and mandates are concerned? I think, like you said, the one thing I've learned is that I have absolutely no idea. So, like, I don't think I could even, like, guess. I don't think I could, my brain could conceptualize what 12 months from now looks like. Uh, because the way that I have been functioning um, just for, like, the past year or so is just, like, I'm not going to expect anything more than, like, six hours before it happens. Like, very much taking things, like, a week at a time figuring out how things are going at any particular time rather than, you know, trying to predict ahead. So I don't think that I even have the brain capability to think about what will happen in 12 months. Well, that was a very diplomatic and uh, sports coach answer right there, giving a long, eloquent answer without really answering the question. That was well played. Thank you. I've learned from the best. Allow me to do the same thing. Because that question, even though I know I kind of formed it in our outline and things, but it just kind of makes me shudder to even think of answering it. But like, if I had to guess, I mean, based on recent experience, I'm assuming we'll be coming out of some type of restriction next year. Like, I have no reason to believe that won't be the case. I'd love to be proven wrong, but like... I mean, everything just seems to show that, like, yeah, two years ago, that first summer, like you said, cases were, like, near zero across Niagara. So it's, like, and and it came back with a vengeance, right? And then this last year came back, like, crazy, too, with another, you know, with the last variant. So, I mean, I, I personally have every reason to believe it'll be another disaster next winter. But, I mean, I, I've... <laughs> I really hope I've proven wrong. I really, really hope that. Yeah, I think uh, summers typically are okay. And then the winter, it gets worse probably because of cold weather and holidays and traveling. But um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll complete the uh, trilogy and not really make a prediction because I have no idea. Um, so just wrapping up with uh, Devani's bit here about the nursing grads, um, given that things are going back to normal, do you guys think that the nursing students have a point to be made here? Um, should things be going back in person, uh, such as this uh, ceremony as a way of sort of recognizing the past two years and all the sacrifices that have been made? I think, like, especially if they, because they have been going to classes in person and they have been going to their placements in person, it doesn't super make a whole lot of sense to me that, um, you know, their celebration and ceremonies that there's 
no reason for that to be in person because I know like the whole thing has been like minimizing unnecessary in-person things but even with that like we're back to doing sort of quote-unquote unnecessary in-person things so yeah I do think that like they absolutely have a point there is a point to be made that like there's I can't think of like I mean I can't think of a good reason why things shouldn't be in person but that you know would apply to classes and you know placements um so yeah I think with the way that things are I think they're absolutely entitled to at least you know ask for that yeah I think I think there's an argument to be made for the um necessity or whatever you want to call it of something like this uh you know this graduation uh, pinning ceremony that they do uh I think there's a necessity to that when you know the when the conditions allow like they do right now because I, I do think it's important to recognize sacrifice of people uh, especially people entering well who have been working as nurses in their placement not as registered nurses but doing the work uh for free mind you as well during such a difficult time uh and also now entering the working world as you know having been qualified and passing what is a very difficult program uh and entering a workplace that's kind of been on fire for the last two years and really been in a state of uh, crisis so yeah I, th I think there's a necessity in recognizing that uh, sacrifice they made I, I do think they have a point to be made here and you know the conditions allow for something like that to happen I think they should uh, you know, be allowed to to do that, to have that uh, ceremony go on, go on in person as it's supposed to. For the next article, we're actually going to talk about one of mine, or well, my one that I wrote this week, my editorial. I shared some thoughts on the price of gas and how absurdly high it is, uh, but why that is, and you know why I think it's important to consider the global context when we're trying to uh, place blame on the whole gas price situation uh and really i from there i just kind of go into you know urging people to resist the talk about you know getting rid of the uh the carbon tax and increasing domestic production of oil and gas uh because i think it kind of it, it misses the point of that climate action you know that has been going on and what it needs to increase uh, and kind of misses the point of this situation that you know, it shouldn't be about getting back to our like de decaying normal that we've been trying to escape from as quickly as possible. It should really be almost an accelerationist point in time to uh, to keep moving things forward in a more environmentally conscious direction. But but that is just my thoughts, and I will ask you all your thoughts on that in a moment. But to start. I'm curious, uh, what are some of the highest gas prices you've seen locally? Because I've seen some pretty ridiculous numbers lately. So I'm just curious if you have anything more ridiculous than than the 180s I've been seeing. <laughs> I, I was going to say, for me, it was 179.9. So pretty much right under 180. Yeah, like, obviously, like, I don't drive, which, you know, I've said before. But, like, I've definitely seen, like, 180, um, getting up to, like, 182. Um, I was with a friend who does drive, like, in her car, and, like, 
we drove a little bit to find cheaper gas for like 175 which like that's not cheap gas in the grand scheme of things but like it was in the context of like how expensive gas is right now it's kind of insane especially when you think about when the pandemic started almost like almost this time to the week uh, two years ago gas plummeted it may have been more like april and may but i mean i remember it being like what was it like 60 cents or something ridiculous like so to have that triple <laughs> in the from like the highest price to the lowest price in two years is just absolutely insane because we've lived through such a ridiculous and tumultuous time in like world history and world events <laughs> So then I'm curious, especially, well, Jonah, you don't drive either, right? I mean, I, I do drive. I just don't have a car, so I mooch off my mom's car. Right. right. Me too. Guilty as charged, but I also live at home, so I drive it yeah. more, I would assume. Like, I'm, I'm in, in St. Catharines. I don't have a car, no. So I really, right. like, this does not affect me very much at all. Right, right. So then I think you, all three of us will have, different takes on this to some degree. Uh, how important or non-important do you see getting gas prices down as being? How, how important of that issue do you think that is? And do you think the government has a role to play in uh, you know, getting prices under control at a time like this? I would say it's definitely, again, like Holly and I don't drive, so for us, it probably doesn't affect us that much. Um, but I do think, like, if there were ever a time for, uh, like, gas prices to be absurdly high, it's probably it's nice to have have it coincide with, like, this whole work-from-home thing where, like, before, if you're having to drive to and from work, you know, five days a week. And sometimes, like, my dad had a job that was in, like, Mississauga, and so he was, like, on the road for, like, two hours a day. So that was always, like, it's, it's lucky that now most people... I guess are able to sort of work from home or maybe they only driving in once a week, twice a week. So um, I think this could have been like disastrous, like five years ago when people were like driving everywhere all the time. Um, so I guess that would be the silver lining in all of this. And um, I would think getting them, I mean, they're never going to go down to what, what, whatever you said it was like two years ago, which was like 70 or something crazy. Um, but getting them down to just, just so you're not like, rubbing your forehead in angst as you're like pulling the gas trigger is probably a good a good move yeah i'm like of i guess two minds about the whole thing because obviously you know like you said um scrapping stuff like the carbon tax um and like climate um change initiatives like that's not a great thing but also like i think that like the people that like expensive gas prices hurt the most um like, they're not really the people in society with a whole lot of power. Like, if gas prices being high, it doesn't affect, like, the super wealthy as much as it affects just, like, regular people. So I guess, like, for that reason, I think that, like, there is something to be done. Um, you know, if it's just some kind of even, like, tax credit or something. Like, I don't you know, know how that would work logistically and feasibly. But, like, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy seeing how much people are spending on gas. Yeah, even as 
like I tried to thread that needle in my article because like I I'm definitely not an idealist person. I understand the urgency and like the reality that like you said, it's affecting normal people and that there is certainly a role for government to play, even if it's purely out of selfish desire to, you know, keep people happy enough to vote them in again um, in in June there. But like, I, I get the need to address gas prices, but it's definitely being like co-opted by people who didn't, were trying to sell like the carbon tax thing you know, uh, two years ago, like when Doug Ford put those stickers on the gas, like forced the gas stations to have those stickers on the the pumps to tell people that prices would go up because of the carbon tax. Like, it's all that type of messaging from two years ago is now coming back to be like, see, we need to get rid of this stuff because of gas prices. But like, that definitely ignores why prices have gone up so much. Like, obviously it's because of the instability of all this all these sanctions and whatnot with russia and even more stuff now is coming because the u.s is not that they necessarily import tons from russia but they're going to be cutting their imports of oil and gas so even more directly influencing it uh, and affecting their uh, oil and gas supply which is going to just make prices worse which i think people would say is justified at the moment but it's you know, the longer that sticks around, the more harm you might be doing to, you know, these these types of efforts uh, to to rein in climate change and to make electric cars more affordable and to, you know, in, invest in making cities more uh, friendly to walking traffic and to uh, pedestrians and for public transit as well. Um, you know, I think it only does a disservice to those things to leave to leave this issue going on longer and longer because you just kind of add fuel to that argument that it's because of, uh, you know, carbon tax and because of we don't produce locally and domestically and all that stuff. So this question might be a little complicated. I'm going to try to go at it a different way, make it a little more direct, but I'm just, I'm curious uh, if you guys got this angle that I was trying to talk about in my piece, because I think it's clear that oil and gas ha has, uh, I mean, we know the, the climate impacts of it, uh, but there's also a security angle. And I think we've kind of proven that here with uh, the Russian situation. Uh, so I'm just curious if you have any either of you have any thoughts you know pertaining to that right like is there is there more arguments than just the climate for getting off of fossil fuels or trying to reduce our use of fossil fuels as much as we possibly can i mean i think like the main argument is always going to be um you know for the sake of climate and also just like for the sake of the fact that fossil fuels are not renewable we're gonna run out we have to figure out what to do when they run out um so i think that is always going to be the main argument but yeah definitely like see the angle that you were going for with just like 
the idea that like if you sanction a country that you get most of your oil from, well now you're kind of screwed with you know oil. Um, so I think that definitely makes sense. I think the idea of like importing from more ethical countries, I don't think there's such a thing as an ethical country, um, especially when they are exporting oil. So I don't think that's really something that like I can super get behind. Um, I guess even just like the idea of importing from countries that you have like a working trade relationship with would be, I guess, one way to do it. But I definitely think like the way to the like long term goal should be reducing the use of it as much as possible. Yeah, you ever see those um, huge like eighteen wheeler trucks when they're at a red light, and then as soon as the green light turns and they go, and there's just like a cloud of like thick smoke that you just can see hanging in the air forever it's just always like i'm not the most like green person but every time i see like a hanging cloud of smoke that like stays there for minutes i'm always just like oh this is probably you should probably do something about these uh fossil fuels so um yeah it's a good point you made holly about like the least work country sort of thing because going to be you're probably going to be hard pressed to find like a fantastic place to get oil from um but i until like teslas are available for everyone you know what choice do we have right and it's it's i think also it's um people like us probably buying cars that are used that are decades old that are not as fuel efficient um that also probably doesn't help this whole this whole fossil fuel thing. Yeah, and what I'm was trying to get at is just that taking that onus off the individual, right? Because I understand that the, at at this current time, Teslas are too expensive. They're definitely too expensive for me uh, or any other electric car for that matter, or any new car for that matter. But that's kind of what I'm getting at is that the I think I personally think the government should be involved in getting those, making those things cheaper, right? If there's subsidy to go around and we're either choosing to, you know, spend millions to get the price of gas down like five cents or something and having the government foot the bill for that or, you know, continuing to invest in research and development to improve and uh, cheapen the, the technology behind green uh, vehicles and green transport. Uh, public transport and other things you know i'd rather we be doing that or even producing it here in canada starting you know increasing manufacturing of those things i think that's if you're talking from a government scale i think that's a good thing that should be kind of prioritized uh, i get the it, immediate need to work you know with what people have which is uh, you know gas you know, powered vehicles. Like I, I get that. <laughs> I just, I hope we could think bigger, but I know I'm, you know, I'm not that idealistic either or optimistic that that's possible. I know that it kind of boils down to what the moment calls for, but I hope this doesn't fall completely on, you know, this moment doesn't fall completely on deaf ears when it comes to uh, governments and politicians. I really do hope that it serves as somewhat of a, waking up point just to realize that you know even beyond the the climate there's there's risks posed as like holly you said as you know um oil and gas becomes more 
finite, more and more difficult to obtain. Uh, you know, and as it gets more expensive, either artificially or, you know, through that scarcity uh, issue, that you know you're going to face more and more issues. There's going to be more pressure to work with uh, bad actors. There'll be more pressure to cave to the interests of countries like Russia uh, to give them what they want in order to secure your supply. Uh, so I just, I really do hope that this is not, you know, this is doesn't just turn into a, a subsidy for, uh, you know, uh, gas station, like gas companies to give you, uh, you know, five cents off gas until this thing blows over. I really hope it is a bigger deal than that, but I can dream, I guess. <laughs> okay, so our final topic, we're going to talk about one of the opinions that I wrote uh, this week, I decided that I wanted to write a little bit about professional athletes um, and, I guess, the intersection between professional athletes and labor, um, viewing professional athletes as laborers and workers. Um, so I guess I sort of pointed out that most of them are not insanely massively wealthy, um, and so to frame any kind of like ongoing labor dispute or negotiation between um, athletes and ownership of teams... Um, as like, you know, millionaires fighting with billionaires and that athletes should be grateful for the opportunities to be a professional athlete. So that doesn't really help matters. That doesn't really accomplish much. And it only really helps the billionaire team owners, especially, you know, when it's time for collective bargaining agreements um, and other kind of negotiations, even things just like as simple as like one guy's contract. Um, so I guess I wanted to talk to you, Jonah, um, especially. Um because you've written about the MLB lockout. Uh, you wrote about that for your feature. Um, I'm not a big MLB person, but I've certainly, you know, been paying attention. Um, so I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts on the lockout and what's going on. Yeah, so I am a big MLB fan and uh, someone who's followed this lockout very closely. Like you said, I wrote a big piece about it. That was um, about three weeks ago, and so a lot has changed since. And my, I guess, quick-hitting thought is that this lockout, and uh, I feel like the media has been doing a better job covering this one. I mean, I wasn't around for the last one, but um, based on you know what I've read, it seems like they're doing a better job sort of illustrating the fact that this is 100% on the owners. This is, the players are asking for so little in, you know, in relativity that uh, the fact that we're missing games and spring training still hasn't started and free agency is frozen. It, like it is a hundred percent on the owners. And even if the owners were to accept the players current offer, like it would still be a huge win for the owners, but it, it's not like, it's not like a, a, you know, blowout completely wall to wall domination win. And that's, they're not going to accept anything less. Like the, the players are just asking to be the players right now are asking, like, let's not, can we just not get screwed as much as last time? And the owners are like, no. So um, I, you know, as much as I want baseball to come back and the lockout to be over, like I do not put any of the onus on the players. Like it's entirely, it's entirely uh, on the owners and the whole like millionaire billionaire thing. I saw like a very good tweet that I am unfortunately not remembering who uh, wrote it, but it basically said like a million seconds ago is like February of this year. And a billion seconds ago is 1990. Like that's that's what how big of a difference we're talking about. And um, I know this is the next point uh, here in our outline that we'll get to. And you do a good job in your piece, Holly. Um, 
but it is, I think, important to just, even if you're like someone like Noah, who's not really a big sports fan, who might not be following this and just thinking, why can't they agree? Um, I do think it's important for everybody to understand that like these, these employees, it's a super, super unique uh, working climate and the stuff that they, I guess, have to deal with is unlike any other profession. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the, the, they're playing for, you know, not only for themselves, but they're playing for like generations to come and they have a very, very finite window to, to do so. Yeah, like there really is, like that is one of the things that I talked about in the piece. There's no other job where like the contracts and the working conditions are similar. Like I think the phrase that I used in the piece was like, McDonald's does not trade cashiers with Wendy's, like no matter how good the cashier is like there's this understanding that the specific set of skills that you have as a professional athlete sort of warrants a different kind of working environment and I think to for them to ask for that working environment to be like a little bit better which is really all they're asking for I think that's incredibly reasonable and like to not give that to them is kind of crazy Um, one of the other things that I talked about in the piece was there's this sort of story coming out of the WNBA which is women's basketball uh, where the New York Liberty uh, got fined like half a million dollars for providing chartered flights uh, for the players. Um, and like, I guess, league policy is that all the teams have to fly commercially and use the flights that like the league provides for them, uh, which is just absolutely bonkers and crazy considering that they're professional athletes. And then just the idea that ownership will then frame them as greedy and selfish for wanting better working conditions and I don't think that that is um something that's sort of unreasonable to ask um and you know you're talking about the way that being a professional athlete is different there are things that like are different about being a professional athlete so like for me um you know having to fly commercially for my job that's not a big deal for like a basketball player though who like is almost seven feet tall that is a big deal. So I guess it's just sort of important to understand that there are different circumstances and they have different needs. And to ask your boss to accommodate your different needs um, is entirely reasonable, I think. Um, you know? Yeah, and especially, um, I once ran into the women's basketball team at Syracuse University at the, the uh, Buffalo Airport. And um, they were like in line, just like everybody else was. And they were taller than everybody else was. And, like, I feel like when I go on a plane, like, I'm already like, oh, my God, I have no leg room. So, like, I can't even imagine someone who's a foot taller than me, you know, having a cram into that coach seat. Yeah, and, like, there are, like, other players who will, like, pay out of pocket to, like, you know, upgrade their seats. And that's not something that they should have to do because it's, like, it's their part of their job to fly there it's they're not doing this for fun it's part of their job and that is another thing that I talked about in the piece is like we just like societally and like verbally it's you play sports you don't work sports like you don't it's hard to view it as like a job like an office job in everyone's head like it's fun and it should be like an honor to be a professional athlete but it is still very much a job um and you can't it's a different kind of working environment and so you have to treat it differently it's you know super easy to be like oh my god even i saw it with like the wnba um 
spending. Like, well, these players make like upwards of two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, and while that's not as much as like men's sports, it's way more than like the average American earns. But also then remembering that the average American can earn money for you know a lot longer than a professional athlete can. You know, they haven't, they didn't spend their entire adolescence sort of essentially, you know, doing unpaid training to get that job. So it is, it's a different, I guess, no pun intended, kind of different ballgame when it comes to professional athletes and, you know, the way that their working cycles go. Yeah, and this is the thing, especially with baseball, is that more so than any other sport, it takes forever to actually like earn money in baseball. And a lot, like this is a very common scenario where a player will get drafted out of high school. Um, if they are a high pick, they'll get, you know, a, a hefty bonus that is supposed to last for quite a while. But if they're not, you know, the bonus is really, it's going to last a few years maybe. And, and that's, you know, depending if you're a fifth round pick or a, a super late round pick, you know, it's almost nothing. So um, unless you're like a top, top pick, you could be drafted out of high school or signed out of, if you're an international player, you could be signed out of, you know, Dominican, Cuba, wherever you're from at like 16, right? And then you're spending, you know, six years in the minors where you're making like literal pennies. Oftentimes, if you're an international player, you don't speak the language. Injuries are always a a risk. Um, Performance is always a risk. Like if you, you know, if you flame out, you don't have a degree to fall back on. Oftentimes, also, if you're an international player, you're, you know, you have a lot, there's a lot of pressure on you to like provide for your family back home. And even if you do make it, the rare few who do, they'll get called up, you know, early 20s. Well, then they're they're not a free agent until they have six years of service time. So sometimes these guys are getting their first crack at real money at like 29, 30, right? And, you know, the, the players who make it to 30, like, yes, they get paid incredible amounts of money, sometimes like nine-figure deals. But it is so rare for people to actually make it that far. And a vast, vast majority of players won't won't even make it the three years needed for arbitration. So I think that's why like a big thing, a big sticking point for the MLBPA this time around is just increasing the minimum salary. And that's going to do if, I mean, assuming MLB, you know, eventually meets them halfway, um, that'll just do wonders for, uh, you know, the, a vast majority of players who the league is, you know, sort of manipulating. Yeah, totally. And it's, I think it's important to frame, um, because, you know, like the millionaires versus billionaires thing, that's the thing that people say a lot of the time. And like one, even if it was millionaires versus billionaires, I am on the millionaire side because the billionaires are the ones exploiting them. Um, But even so, it's the players that like, you know, and like, you know, your favorite players who make a lot of money, they're not like, Typically, they are not doing this for themselves. Um, like, it's a big thing with sort of the MLB situation that, like, they're doing this for minor league players. They're doing this for the next guys who sort of come up. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to make because it, in that case, it's not really millionaires versus billionaires. It's regular people who have a job um, where they might make slightly more than a normal person um but also will have to retire when they're like 36 um so i think that's just an important distinction to make that it's not really millionaires versus billionaires allow me to 
<laughs> Give my uneducated take. <laughs> it was good listening to you guys because I like that you're passionate about this stuff and know about it. I certainly don't, and I'm certainly not passionate about it, which is kind of my issue because I can get behind um, standing with work workers over bosses, absolutely. And so, just on principle, I agree, Holly. I certainly would. I am in favor of you know um, supporting the the athletes. There's just so many uh, you know workers struggles that. I personally feel are way more important uh, that take precedence in my mind as a non-sports person. Uh, and I don't necessarily think I'm alone in that. I agree that the people who are like, they're being uh, greedy and who are essentially just like doing the dirty work for uh, their, the owners of these teams is just, I mean, pretty embarrassing and pretty ignorant. Uh, but I mean, look, yeah, ideally they could make enough to have lived off of their sports careers for the rest of their life. But like, if you leave, if you have to leave a job in your 30s, you're perfectly capable of doing uh, normal non-sports work for another 20 years, as the rest of society does, uh, if it didn't provide for you into, up into your 80s. Like, I, I... I get they should uh, be treated fairly in the moment and stuff, but I mean, the talk of like giving them enough to provide for the rest of their, I mean, it's just, it's totally out of step with like the rest of the working world that I just can't really give too, like, it just doesn't matter to me much <laughs> to, to fight for that stuff. But that's just me as like a general labor person who's certainly happy to give my, you know, lend my support to, athletes over owners absolutely but it's just on in terms of my priority list of kind of working people which i know you know we really shouldn't be parsing them out but hey that's the reality we do you know they, their struggle to me is um is a lower personal priority of just something to be passionate or personally be invested in or you know what i mean but that's me my ignorant sports take <laughs> yeah i think that's fair especially for someone who like doesn't you know do sports i think like my article is definitely like targeted as like at like sports fans mostly just being like hey stop calling people greedy for asking for what they deserve and i think i guess i guess like the only thing that i take issue with is the idea that like their careers shouldn't provide for them for the rest of their lives i do really think it should because when you ask someone to be a professional athlete you're asking them to basically give you like their body for the rest of their life because like players get injured so much players like even if a player like is not injury prone and doesn't get injured being a professional athlete is not good for you it is not good for your body it like can shorten your lifespan even so i think and then combine that with the idea that, like, their labor creates so much value. I think for them to, like, ask for that is, I think, incredibly valid. Just like I think it's valid for every single, you know, worker to ask for the labor, for the value of their labor, that they be compensated for that. So I think, like, that's the only thing that you said that I don't necessarily agree with. But I think for, like, average people, like, yeah, this isn't something that you really have to care about. Jonah and I are, like sports management majors so like obviously this is the labor stuff that we're going to be 
banging on about. Yeah, and you are right. Of course, they're sacrificing their bodies. But again, that I mean, I don't want to keep running, walking, or talking in circles. Uh, but like, and then this isn't to be some type of pity party. It's just a personal example that I know of. That like my uh, one of my grandparents or one of my grandfathers, he worked in uh, automotive manufacturing his whole life uh, or his whole adult life. Uh, my dad, you know, still currently is working there. And I mean, just the, the physical toll of that. And again, I'm not saying because they don't have it, others shouldn't. But I just, when I'm talking about, or when I'm thinking of personal priority of, you know, workers deserving of better treatment, I'm not uh, losing sleep for athletes before, say, like people in manufacturing, people in minimum wage jobs who, you know, their job does not, working 20 years does not provide for them the rest of their life. They have to work into their fifties and sixties or even longer, uh, especially now, right. Without, with even less promise of retirements and pensions. So, but like you said, as, as a non-sports person, it's, it, it does make sense, the difference. And as I also already said, I do definitely support the athletes above the owners. It's just, We've said it. We don't need to reiterate unless there's new points to be said. <laughs> and also, like, no the one point. thing that, like, it usually come back to for me is, like, women's sports. Like, they don't make enough. They don't make as much as, like, somebody who's working a regular full-time job. So I think just advocating for that kind of labor, that also is, like, a different thing for me. But anyway, Jonah, I just kind of cut you off. No, I was just going to say, I think, like, I don't know if we want to end off here, but like pretty much I think the lesson to be learned here is that um, Noah, your uh, article from a few years ago about why being a billionaire is unethical has aged beautifully. Yeah, whether they're in, that's one thing that doesn't change, you know, whatever the industry, uh, being a billionaire comes at the cost of, you know, the the labor of others, uh, undoubtedly, unavoidably. <laughs> And that does it for another episode of The Latest. Thank you, Holly and Jonah, for joining me to talk about these great articles. Thanks for our spirited or not-so-spirited debate or agreement, but different sides of the same coin on uh, sports. And thanks for teaching me a few things about uh, athletes and their struggles. I appreciate it. And thanks for talking about all the rest of it, too. We had a, a great conversation about all these fantastic articles this week. Uh, but they are not the end. That is not the extent of the articles from this week. We have a lot of great ones all on the website, www.brockpress.com. You'll find them all there. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And we share those articles there as well throughout the week. Uh, on top of following us on social media, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, um, and more and more and more. Just be sure to look up the latest, the Broadcast Podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, and you should find us with no issues. You'll also find the podcast on our website and on our YouTube channel. Uh, with all that said, uh, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time for another episode.